Once again, episode 78 of the Saber Die podcast. This is DM Mike with DM Liz. Hello. DM Jim. Roger, Roger. And the part of GM Glenn will be played by DM John Peterson, who is Good back. Afternoon. Yay. <laughs> Good afternoon. Hello. Yes, unfortunately, Glenn got drug off to New Mexico for some reason over the weekend, so... And he John, misses out on John Peterson's pulse-pounding return. The John DePart of Glenn may be a little bit of a stretch. What we're going to need you to do here is work in at least two inappropriate remarks per 30 minutes. I, I don't think that's a problem, actually, especially given the content of the amazing book we're going to be discussing today. All right. Hey, that's the spirit. On this episode, we will be covering the third of the original D&D supplements, Eldritch Wizardry. Possibly the first one with, the, with a cover that... Uh, probably did not play terribly well to the non-gaming hobbyists. I think... Why? Did you, oh, go on. Did you ask I was, why? I was going to say, why whatever do you mean, Mike? <laughs> I don't know, but, you know, I mean, when I was, you know, 10, 11 years old, I thought it was a great cover, personally. But, you know, some people might have had a problem or two with it. I don't know. I mean, to, to my eyes, it's just a young woman reclining for a quiet nap. I mean, is there... Is there a problem? Indeed. I mean, yeah, maybe the the, the, the the surface is a bit hard, but, you know, maybe she has spine issues, you know? She's nice, hard back sleeping. I don't know. But first, what have we been doing in gaming this week? DM Jim. Oh, I get to start. Um, you get to start. Yay! My uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG campaign is in a funny little spot. Uh, we have like a rotating cast, and we usually have ten players, and the last couple of games have uh, kind of gone off the rails. So uh, DM Marcos uh, has reached that point where he's a little tired of dealing with it. So I think next game we're going to flip out, and I'm going to uh, run my first game and play test that uh, project that I've been working on with the same cast of characters. And after I kill them all, they'll start playing better, I bet. After you kill them all. Well, not if. I'm not going to be all drill sergeant about it and just ask the first guy to step out of line and go, you, you're dead. No save. (laughs) (laughs) You made up your new character? Good. He's dead too. But, uh, oh, we're just, you know, campaigns go through little phases. We're going through one. But the uh, basic D&D game that we all play in, I had never had more fun at in my entire life than that last game. That was the way I remember playing back in the late 70s, early 80s. And I I, I even sent uh, Shannon Angry Monk a uh, thank you email afterwards. Cool. That, that was some badass old school play. And it was so stupid. It was just chasing an evil magic user through the woods. But <laughs> after he drank an invisibility potion. But I had fun. I don't know about you guys. Well, I had fun until I my laptop froze up for the last five minutes of the game. 
oh, during and- the climactic battle. And poor Liz got hit with a fear spell and ran the other way. That sucked. That's the very right. first round, too. It's I didn't like, get a chance to do anything. I just went, ah! <laughs> went and hid under the queen-size bed in your guest bedroom. That's right. Casters. I love playing them. I hate fighting them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, John, have you managed to get any gaming in? Well, not in the last went week. Cosmopolitan... Lifestyle. I know. I know. Well, last week I spent actually mostly at DIGRA, which is uh, the Digital Games Research Association conference. It's like an academic conference where people meet to talk mostly about video games, but actually did a keynote there on the, the legacy of D&D and why all of your digital games actually depend on the fundamental system innovations of D&D. So here, bring, here. bringing the message to the masses. Um, it was actually a lot of fun, and a lot of people there, of course, are very hip to uh, pre-digital games, and a lot of people are very interested in kind of what the interplay is between them, so I had a lot of fun doing that. Uh, well, but cool. the, week be- the week before was Gen Con. I did get to do some good old-school gaming at Gen Con. Uh, we did a session, uh, Luke Crane. I don't know if you know Luke Crane. He's a guy who worked on Burning Wheel, uh, Torchbearer. He works at Kickstarter. He ran a session of uh, B5, The Horror on the Hill. In which I played a pretty ill-fated fighter. Actually, you know, it was played with Moldvay rules, and Moldvay isn't isn't my home turf. And so I, I actually made a blunder in that I was I had a two-handed battle axe, and I kind of rushed into a combat with it, not appreciating that actually under Moldvay rules you always go last. Apparently, if you have a two-handed battle axe, oh, that's right. melee, and yeah, oh yeah, two-handed. That, okay. Yeah, I got like totally ganked by this whole crowd that I rushed into with this. And after that, I had to take on the persona of an NPC caveman for the rest of the game. Which, um, which, was, which, which was fun. For some reason, they were French-speaking cavemen. And so I got to... Uh, yeah, I, I, I think we, initially I intuited that they should be more like Russian-speaking, but I was corrected, and so I kind of had to put all these gallicisms into, into my... my Various grunts and utterances. So you're yeah, very, you were also, very, very good at painting deer on the cave wall. <laughs> That's right, right, right. There was also painting. a great game of uh, Don't Give Up the Ship at Gen Con. Uh, the, oh. You know the classic Gygax, Arneson, and Mike Carr naval miniatures rules. And I'd love to get was, a copy of that one of these days. Yeah, well, it was fascinating because Mike Carr actually ran it. Um, and there was a crew from the uh, the Dungeons and Dragons documentary there filming it. We did this all in the presidential suite of the West End, like in Peter Atkinson's room. Uh, Peter Atkinson, of course, run, runs Gen Con, and so he was one of the other players. <laughs> we all had this like sixteen player game. It took about nine hours to resolve. Actually, wow. well, see, you just explained why I didn't run into you at Gen Con because while I was down there sweating it out on the floor, you were up in the master suite. Oh, uh, right, right, right. Well, for that entire day, pretty much. Yeah. Well, that, that was six at night until three in the morning. So, uh, so I, I do feel like I've gotten in my old school quotient lately. Was it a historical scenario or just something made up, you know, every, you know, ships slamming away at each other? So it was a counterfactual historical scenario based on a battle that almost happened in the Napoleonic era between uh, a group of Russian ships off the coast of Estonia who were kind of harassed by a, a combined English and Swedish fleet, but they eventually just parted ways and decided not to fight it out. And so we actually fought that out. Oh, cool. I love so it must al- have been... I love alternative hmm? history. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. Yeah, some of the 
as listeners may know, I teach college history, and I, I, it astounds me that so many uh, historical history PhDs and tenured professors poo-poo counterfactual stuff and don't even hmm. want to touch it. And I'm just like, well, how can you really appreciate how a historical event happened unless you know what could have happened if it had gone another way? Oh, see, well, I just... I- I'm, I'm at the other end of the spectrum where I love Harry Turtledove, so I, I love reading about history, but I need there to be some time-traveling guys giving AK-47s to the South in Civil War or something <laughs> to, to, for me to learn about it. Yeah. I, I think you always learn putting yourself into the shoes of the people who are there and seeing if you would have made the same decisions. And, you know, I mean, the, there, there are things about that particular period that I hadn't appreciated until I really thought about this particular tactical situation. Uh, what was really going on in the Baltic Sea during the Napoleonic War, right? I think a lot about what was happening in France and Germany and so on, but not so much about, you know, up north there. So I, you get a window into a different part of history from it. Yeah, most of what you hear for Napoleonic naval is... You know, either the Battle of the Nile or Trafalgar, and that's pretty much it. You know, <laughs> right, right, exactly. There okay. aren't even any Frenchmen in this, right? So it's uh... so maybe that's why the French thing kind of drifted over. Or did you do that before or after the basic game? I'm sorry. The oh no, that was uh, that was two nights <laughs> before. Yeah, no, the, there were no cavemen. I think either way involved in, uh, involved in this. Well, I was just wondering, you know, if, if the Frenchness of playing in that game kind of drifted over or... Yeah, not, not to my certain knowledge. I think I may have been the only point of overlap in the crowds that showed up for those two ah. games. And, uh, okay. Well, I'm no expert, but those guys are terrible swimmers. They're better at infantry, I bet. <laughs> French or cavemen? The cavemen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, French, French military is easy to play. All you have to know are the French words for I surrender. Ow, ow, ow. Uh, yeah, Napoleon did quite well, actually, I think, uh, for some time there. Yeah, I, I try to tell my students, you know, one war the French did rather poorly at, World War II, and their whole culture is now painted with it. <laughs> oh, well. So what about you, Liz? Well, I was in the online game with you and Jim and Glenn and... Doc Mindwipe, um, where my elf was cast with fear and totally missed out on the entire big battle near the end of the game. So <laughs> I'm surprised she got any XP at all, really. Um, did that. We had our weekly second edition game yesterday. And. Yeah, I kind of regret Glenn's not here because we were looking forward to kind of. Picking on him about it because this game we are basically running into science fiction. Um, our DM modified barrier peaks for us to run through well, you're while we're whole, in the land of the lost. The whole Valley of the Guanjai thing. Yeah, yeah. And and we ran to robots, we ran to slee stacks, who the DM insisted was entirely my fault because I kept referring to this campaign as Land of the Lost. So he install he insists he installed them specifically for me. Like, oh gee, thanks. And That's... then they beat the crap out of us with a rake and a shovel. Oh god, yeah. Those <laughs> we we were going through apparently the guards and these genetically engineered lizard men who we were told were like Arnold Schwarzenegger sized and they come up and beat 
nearly killed a couple of us with a rake and a shovel. I know. There's six of us in the group. There's just two of these guys. We're averaging fifth to sixth level. Yeah, one has a rake, one has a shovel, and they're going to town on us. <laughs> Is it just bad dice, or were your casters out of spells? Uh, no, we had plenty of spells, you know, and but we had two magic users. Um, Mike's character is a fighter magic user elf, and we had a straight magic user played by Tim. And, you know, they're just, you know, pumping magic missiles into these two guys. And it's like they're just shrugging them off. It's like, oh, a scratch. Yeah, they're <laughs> too then, close for any fireballs or anything. So. And then one of them whacks one of us with a shovel and does 17 points of damage with one shovel blow. It's like, good lord! <laughs> and that's after you gave your DM uh, chocolate and peanut butter, right? I know! I, I think there there should have been some pluses on our side going on for the chocolate peanut butter dessert, but no. <laughs> or it's maybe probably... we weren't dead because of the chocolate peanut butter dessert. I don't know. <laughs> Or maybe it was because I started ranting about weapon and non-weapon <laughs> proficiencies again. With proficiency with shovel and rake. Um, I mean, I, my recollection of the show is those sleaze stacks never were very high tech, right? There was this whole pyramid thing going on. I mean, yeah, the yeah. show in eons. But what they didn't have like laser guns or anything, right? I, no. Well, apparently he decided that we needed cybernetic sleaze stacks. Attacking us. I see. <laughs> well, and, they're like and, zombies, too. You just outrun them because they can't run. <laughs> and, yeah, at the, when we're at the top, we're in kind of a savanna, uh, wilder uh, area. And so he's like, does anyone have survival, you know, planes? And I said, no, we don't. So I guess we all died <laughs> because we don't have survival planes. Oh, so we can't well, survive, right? You, you did, you did like, violate the player code because you've got yes. to keep the DM all Mountain Dude up and not smart off too much. Yeah, yeah well, it's me. So I couldn't help it. That's what it even though I have tracking and hunting, I can't survive in a plane because I don't have plane survival. And <laughs> they told me shut up. and <laughs> <laughs> and then oh, his my. character gets hit in the head with a shovel. You know, no figure. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Come to think of it, he did hit me with the shovel first, didn't he? Yeah, you you were you were shoveled. Yeah, is, and is, then is we he, made mystery men jokes is about. He the, is he the kind of DM where, as you're making him angrier, the monsters are gaining hit die? I usually do something goofy, you know, like say, and out of nowhere, a cart of full of eggs falls on you. You take one hit point of damage. Yeah, oh, okay. that's that's his way of usually, you know, wreaking revenge. Or he'll penalize me XP sometimes, you know. Mike wants it, though. Yeah. So it's kind of a reverse psychology thing. I've reached a point to where I really have to needle him to get him to take away XP. That doesn't sound too bad. I mean, worse, you know, he TPs your castle, or you know, you might somebody might key your horse or something. It doesn't make too much minor annoyance. <laughs> exactly. Hey, they keyed my Mustang. <laughs> and go out there. All of a sudden, there's a brand in the shape of a key on the flank of your horse. <laughs> He's been keyed. Because what do you do when you're branded and you fight for your name? No one that's listening to this show under 40 has any idea what you just talked about. I know. I know. That's that's the really sad part. That's what Google's for. 
<laughs> yeah, Google it. Wikipedia it. Anyway, well, we're not going to cover emails this time, but we will make the announcement that we have been bad and we have not yet sent Mavfire and Sean their prizes yet. We apologize. It's entirely mine and Liz's fault. It's a new semester. We've been running around dealing with freshmen and all that stuff. So our bad. This is Labor Day weekend. So this next week we will mail out prizes. Honestly. No, seriously. Anyway. All right. Well, as we said, we're going to be talking about Eldritch Wizardry. And first we're going to cut away for very important announcements. And we'll go from there right into Game On. So you guys are in the Misty Mug. What are you doing? I am buying a Bloody Mermaid. A blind, as always. Sunshine comes out from the back. She actually needs some help with the problem. What problem? There's rats in the cellar. Oh, God. Giant rats, I presume. I don't know. Do you want to go check it out? So you guys make your way down into the cellar. Sure enough... Amongst the crates and barrels, there are nine giant rats. Remember the last time we fought giant rats? They nearly killed us. In the nest of the giant rats is 2,000 copper pieces. Hmm. 20 gold. One's copper. It's 2,000. <laughs> we came here to help Sunshine with their problem. We had to fight the giant rats. Initiative. Yeah. Check out the Delvers podcast at burnedeffects.com. Gaming on with Eldritch Wizardry, the third and, I suppose you could argue, unless you're going to count uh, Gods, Demigods, and Heroes, the last supplement for original D&D before AD&D started rearing its head in the late 70s. And since we have an expert on the show, John, would you mind telling us something about uh, the background for Eldritch Wizardry? Sure. So uh, Eldritch Wizardry came out in the spring of 76, I think probably... Probably around May is when it shipped to people. Um, unlike the two previous supplements, Greyhawk and Blackmore, um, Eldritch Wizardry kind of came out of the blue. Uh, Greyhawk and Blackmore have been long telegraphed as they were coming, and there had been a few hints that Gygax had dropped in fanzines and strategic review that uh, TSR wanted to do a supplement that would contain a lot of submissions from the community, since at the time, by, by early 76, they were just being deluged with ideas. Uh, remember that, you know, the conclusion of the original published D&D has this invitation in it, uh, send us your ideas, right? Oh, yeah. And people are just constantly calling or sending in various material, by, by 76 more really than anyone could handle. And so I think Eldritch Wizardry ended up being an anthology of some things they were taking from submissions that had come in, some things that they had developed themselves. Um, you know, it, it credits people who were not TSR employees at the time, like, you know, Dennis Astar and... Uh, uh, Steve Marsh, people like that, as as uh, submitters to it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it kind of does reflect a, an attempt to let people have their voice and to have it be part of something that was an official, canonical TSR publication. I've always thought it was the very first Splat book ever. Hmm. In terms of Greyhawk, Blackmore, traditional rule supplements, and then here's this sort of melange. 
Oh, well, let me explain hmm. what I mean. Uh, and ask your opinion yeah. since you've studied the history of it. Uh, if you know your uh, Apple computer history, there was a point where they're focusing all the company resources on developing the Macintosh, but it's going to take them a couple of three years. So meanwhile, there's another part of the company that is just building the next Apple II because 75% of their cash is coming from that. Eldridge Wizardry always struck me as like the, 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 the extra Apple II. Okay, we're, we know we're going to do AD&D. We started work on it, but it's going to be a few years. We need to get something out there to keep this, this older version of the game going. Interesting question. I'm not sure that at this point AD&D had been so thoroughly conceived that they were just kind of doing maintenance work on, on OD&D to keep it alive. By the time they're putting out things like Swords and Spells, and again, we can argue whether this or <laughs> Gods, Me, Gods and Heroes or Swords and Spells is really the last installment of kind of classic D&D. Um, you know, this came out while they were still putting out a lot of material in the Strategic Review and in the Dragon. You could view some of that as time on and on. It's kind of just maintaining the original OD&D brand until they got AD&D stuff ready. Don't you think um, they'd, they'd certainly decided that the rules needed an overhaul and they were going to do it by this point, though? I, I think they knew that the rules needed an overhaul. I'm not sure that they exactly knew that there was going to be AD&D and basic D&D and that there was going to be a split yet in the spring of, of 76. Okay. Um, I mean, I think that the idea that they were going to split may, maybe came a little later in the year than this. Uh, but definitely you see in here ideas that um, reflected work that had been done in the fan community for some time. I know we're going to go into the Druid class here pretty soon. Um, you know, the Druid class is a great example of something that had been invented like six times before TSR printed a Druid class. Um, because the Druid had appeared as an NPC monster in Blackmore, um, a great many fanzines or just, just fan circulations and local gaming groups had talked about the right way to do a, a druid class, a, a neutral cleric. In OD&D, clerics couldn't be neutral. They had to be lawful or chaotic. And a lot of people wanted there to be a neutral cleric. And when they saw the, the Blackmore druid monster, uh, all these different proposals circulated around that time for, for how to do the druid. So in some respects, you can see that as a reaction to that fan creativity and the idea they needed to canonicalize something because there was so much demand for this. Um, and this this is what it would end up looking like. Well, and as far as maintenance, I mean, they continued publishing Eldritch Wizardry through 1979, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Right, so, you know, they, they still kept, and I, one would assume they wouldn't have kept publishing them if there wasn't still demand, even though by 79... The DM's guide, I think, was out, so AD&D was quote-unquote complete. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, the ideas that are presented in it, things like the Druid class, uh, psionics, uh, for, love it, love it or, or hate it, um, <laughs> the artifacts, the demons, I mean, these were all concepts that uh, had long legs, right? This wasn't merely throwaway ideas. These are things that were carried on into AD&D as it went forward. Um, so, you know, we can see so much of the work on those prefigured and what we see in this. So I, I look at it as a step, you know, a stepping stone and incremental progression of the system towards what AD&D would ultimately look like. Yeah, and, you know, you note the pressure, I seem to recall, the in your book, Playing at the World, available on sale from Amazon and other local <laughs> distributors. <laughs> How could we forget that part? It's the whole point. Yeah. At, a, at a better hobby shop near you. That's right. <laughs> right. Um, you mentioned that from the beginning, uh, you, you mentioned repeatedly that TSR was literally getting beat up in alarms and excursions and other other um, fan-driven 
areas because they were so slow in putting out material. Oh, sure. I mean, from the perspective of the fan community, this was a game that was, I mean, so revolutionary, so impactful, and at the same time, practically incoherent, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. so poorly organized, um, full of alternative ideas. I mean, one thing in Eldritch Wizardry that's easy to miss because things like psionics and demons, you know, have such a higher profile, you know, has like an alternative turn order sequence in it based on a six segment round where basically your dexterity determines at what segment in the round you act. And based on that, it's effectively an alternative way of doing initiative, of deciding who's going to act first in a round. Well, if your dex is really high and you're just firing a missile weapon or casting a spell, you'll act in you know segment one or two, and so you'll act before somebody else does. Um, th- this is like the fourth or fifth way they had proposed to figure out <laughs> who should go first in a round. Um, and they were just throwing ideas at the dartboard and seeing what sticks, right? Um, and to the fan community, this was so immensely frustrating <laughs> uh, because in places where the rules were unclear, they were coming up with their own ideas, right, and putting them out there and trying to get people in their local gaming groups at least to adhere to them. And then, so if you had adopted a neutral cleric already, and plenty of people in Los Angeles had uh, their neutral cleric was published in Alarms and Excursions probably three times before Eldritch Wizardry came out. And people in L.A. were using variants on that. And when Eldritch Wizardry comes out, what do you do? Do you stop using what you're doing locally and move to this? Um, and, you know, these, these things just created endless kind of confusion and consternation for the community. There's another thing that Tim Cass says in the forward to it that's a, a, a equal fan-derived thread where he states more or less the purpose of Eldritch Wizardry is to pump new life into a game that's gotten boring. That, those aren't his words, but that's kind of what he's trying to say. Here's, here's The players all have those books. Here's a new book. It's the start of that cycle. Here's a new book with new rules you can throw at your players that are bored with their 32nd level you know, uh-huh. superhero. Right. Yeah. And in that sense, I get splat book because splat books do very much have this quality of you need to constantly produce more of them, right? And they contain information that... Um, your players don't know yet. So if you just want to stay one step ahead of your players, you have to purchase these new releases from TSR and consume them and use them before the players catch on. And that's definitely how I read that introductory passage. It's a fascinating passage. I think a really important one for understanding the history of D&D, that this was TSR's you know, strategy for dealing with players you know, reading their old books. Well, obviously then you got to buy more books and surprise your players with things in our new book. Don't think of things yourselves. <laughs> Please just buy our <laughs> books and use those instead. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, have, I have one question for Liz. Hmm? I, Cause I was thinking about this as I was freshening up on this rule set. Liz, have you ever played a druid? Yes. Um, not with any of the basic or classic rules, but I've, I've played a druid character for first or second edition. I was just thinking it was such a perfect match for you because you like playing spellcasters and you truly, in your own personal life, you know, with the adopting uh, animals <laughs> from the shelter and stuff. The animals. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's. Uh, we'll get to this when we talk about the druid. It's one of the high player uh, abuse level character classes. Players love to misrun this class, but you'd be perfect was what I was thinking. <laughs> Yeah, well, it would be really hard to play a druid correctly, quote-unquote. Well, uh, you love the animals. I, I do love the animals. <laughs> well, and it also depends on what kind of druid you're trying to run, because, I mean, I, I remember when the druid was originally put forward as a monster in Greyhawk, you know, 
they were not nice people. This was more Wicker Man than yeah, Wicca. taking all the darker aspects of the, yeah of the old the ancient Celts. And- right, and whereas Sestar's um, class, which I think is wasn't he attributed for this, the one in Eldritch Wizardry? Yes, yes, yeah. Um, it's you know it starts going more toward that direction. I think the the more you know, peace, love, you know, whatever tree hugging <laughs> druid that it eventually develops into. Instead of the evil demons of uh, Christian medieval mythology. Yeah, or or Roman. You know, to be fair, you know, the ancient Romans really didn't like the druids. They released a lot of propaganda about them too. Because they were horrible, they're evil, they have to be destroyed. No, we're not just going after them because they have a lot of gold. Um because we'd never do that. Mm-hmm. Purely coincidental. Well, yeah, and to a Roman, I mean, the Druids, part of their sacrificial rite was to make gold jewelry and then to toss them into deep water pools. And to an ancient Roman, that's like killing a firstborn, you know. They, they oh, they thought that was horrible. Throwing away gold? No! <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, um, so Stir was part of the Blackmore crew, right? Or was he? Am I misremembering? Um, not, not to my knowledge. Oh, um, was he? Okay. I, I seem to recall him running the Great Druid, but I couldn't remember what campaign that was in. So I think that's actually the credit he gets in Eldritch Wizardry, if on the front page. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's given the Great Druid there. I'm not sure that that um, corresponded to anything in particular in Blackmore, though. Oh, okay. Well, well again, maybe again, not the just... Blackmore supplement, but the um, the Judges Guild one that covered Blackmore. You know, maybe he was a part of that. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm remembering. I'll have to look that up. But it, just like what I was saying about you, Liz, that makes perfect sense that Dr. Suster was the one that came up with the version that everybody liked because of bunnies and burrows and his interest in small animals. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, for those, um, if you don't like, whether regardless of what classic D&D you play, if you're not thrilled with the druid as proposed in the companion uh, box set... This is a pretty good version that it seems to run fairly well with most versions of various classic D&Ds, whether it's Bay, Mincer, etc. Um, if I allowed a druid in one of my classic games, it would probably be this one, simply because I uh, the classic or the companion version, while pretty cool, I guess, it, it just smacks too much of a prestige class to me. Um, I don't know why you'd be a cleric up till about 7th or 8th level and then suddenly decide, I want to be a druid now. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing to talk about because what's the druid's role in an adventuring party? And and, and, and I don't think they were – my read on Eldritch Wizardry is they weren't even thinking in those terms then. They were thinking much simpler, like, give me something halfway between a cleric and a magic user. Yeah. There you go. Split the difference. Yeah, I, I'd read some criticisms on it in that it's very – you know, environmentally specific, i.e. wilderness, but couldn't the same argument be made for a ranger? Well, as the as the additions go along, those two classes start serving pre- some more increasingly similar roles. Yeah, especially as rangers get their spell casting at higher levels. And as we discussed when we were talking about the Blackmore supplement with the assassin class... It's really, it is a very narrow, 
you know, field in which playing an assassin as a PC, if it was going to be allowed in the first place, there's not a whole lot of different areas where you can really get good mileage out of playing an assassin. So, Yeah, it's kind of a fine line. Whenever either companies or fans or whatever start introducing new classes, it seems by definition they always start getting more and more narrowly focused. Was that uh, from the beginning, John, or is that something that just kind of cropped up in the 80s and yeah, late 70s? a good 70s? question. Yeah, in terms of when you say narrowly focused, I mean, uh, I, I might have actually suggested the opposite, that, that as classes get more articulated, they tend to become Swiss army, army knives, right, and get more and more things attached to them <laughs> uh, as time goes on, gain, gain new abilities and kind of get more normalized. Um, I, I can tell you that when the people were contemplating the best way to adapt the druid uh, NPCs from Greyhawk to uh, a, a, a PC class, there was a lot of debate about whether they should be magic users or clerics. Um, there were some proposals that had them as a subclass of magic user rather than as a subclass of cleric. Now, that's and interesting. You hmm. see this go back and forth, actually, with a lot of these kinds of things when people are contemplating different ways. Do the bard, should that be an independent class? Should that be subclassed? Um, the subclassing mechanism certainly has that narrowing, that winnowing property that you're describing where, you know, you get... Um, you, you become more specific, right, in some respects, mm-hmm. but is the paladin's abilities, are they a superset of the fighting man or are they a subset of it? I guess ultimately, although there are some constraints that the paladin has that the fighting man doesn't, um, I, I'd say the paladin gets a better a better deal overall and a wider set of abilities that they can Oh, use. yeah, yeah, especially if your DM isn't enforcing alignment much. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, you get a free horse and, you know, you, you get a lot of good things out of being a paladin. Mm-hmm. Um and I mean, as the druids are described in Sestar's system, um, I mean, aside from some of their constraints, like the necessity of working with mistletoe, um, <laughs> you know, they they get an interesting selection of abilities that kind of do complement what we see in the the cleric and magic user lists. Uh, there's a lot of overlap, and then a, a small set of interesting, unique abilities they get: uh, call lightning, passing through plants, things like that. Shape change. Yeah, That's and not- I'm sh- right. And I'm sure it was a balancing, a game balancing issue, but it always struck me as really weird that druids, you know, servants of nature can't turn undead. Hmm. You know, from a concept, that seems to me a no-brainer, but I assumed that it was one of those, well, you know, if they can do that, why play a cleric, you know? I think that's tied to, again, their neutrality. I think, you know, the good, evil, uh, lawful, chaotic thing. And that's another thing we see, actually, in Eldritch Wizardry. It's the first place where we start to see, uh, you know, the, the classic alignment. Uh, you know, chaotic evil is ascribed to to the demons. Uh, you wouldn't see that in earlier supplements um, since that had only recently been published in the Strategic Review at the time that uh, Eldritch Wizardry came out. Yeah. Um, I've seen so them refer to a, lawful and good in that regard, right. too. Yeah. So, I mean, it, maybe it's just that druids, because they're neutral, uh, are kind of seen as not having that kind of good triumphing over evil uh, Christian overtone that lets you turn undead if you're a cleric. Mm-hmm. I have something to throw out on the table for the assembled group think. Um, in my experience, the campaigns I've played in, second only to the Paladin, the Druid seems to be the classical class that's the most prone to player abuse. In fact, it seems to attract the players that are least suited to play it at the table. 
has been my experience. And, uh, and by that I mean, you know, the guy playing the druid who wants to grind the whole adventure to a halt to argue about whether or not we're going to torch these woods to stave off the incoming army or the monsters. This yeah, bad, bad role if you say that basically about. it's it's you know, will their character's mindset allow certain party actions? Yeah, I can see where you're coming from on that. But again, like you know, John pointed out, it's, you know, to me, inherently, undead must be against nature. So you'd think it'd be a no-brainer for the druid to be against them. But as noted, you know, their baseline was neutrality between good and evil. So if you take it as undead as, well, that's just a an aspect of evil, then having them in the middle of it makes a little more sense. I may not be articulating my idea well, because that's game mechanics, and unless the answer ends up being somehow embedded in the game mechanics, what I'm talking about is more the role-playing aspect of it, where people want to, like the classic thing where somebody wants to play a paladin, and they just turn into, like, they role-play at the table like they've got a, a two-handed sword up their rear. You know, I, or, I've, I've seen I've seen the druid class attract this, this type of player. Or I would say, you know, again, not to get too far off, but again on the Paladin, I would also say is the uh, you get the other type of player who will try to argue why killing prisoners is actually a lawful good act or oh, – Constantly rationalizing why what they do is within their alignment. Right, or worst of all, the lawful stupid which is, you know, oh, we're going to kill these prisoners, but the paladin's not going to like it. Hey, Bob, why don't you go check the front of the room and make sure nobody's coming in? Okay. And he knows very well what they're going to do to the prisoners. But he plays it as, well, as long as it's you know out of sight, out of mind. If I didn't see it, it didn't happen. It wasn't evil. It didn't happen, so. I mean, the, the druidic prohibitions, they aren't really that bad, right? Yeah, you, you can't burn down the forest. You try to avoid slaying animals if you can help it. But there aren't, there aren't a lot of absolutes beyond that, are there? I mean, what, what do you Not think? Not the classic uh, one, I don't think. Yeah. Um, it's been my experience. Not a lot of people that I have gamed with have really ever wanted to play a druid. And I would say it's primarily because druids cannot turn undead. And... Um, on the other hand, I've also had the experience where a lot of people aren't interested in playing clerics because they are concerned that they're going to get relegated to sitting in the back and just doing first aid on the quote-unquote real fighters. The medic. Yeah. Um, so I haven't noticed a lot of people really wanting to be a druid You're like oh we get such cool powers as a druid i want to do that yeah that's not been my experience and um, maybe it's different with other people but yeah in when i was in junior high you know there was that ex- that period i'm sure every campaign goes through where the players start rolling through each class trying to find the optimum optimum one for them mm-hmm. and i've had people try to especially min-maxers, try to use the druid, but the moment they start getting high enough level to start fighting each other, uh, it suddenly becomes a lot less interesting for them. Well, maybe that's part of the answer, then, that it's a class that tends to attract power gamers. Mm. It's also a class. Yeah, go on. Sorry, John. Jim. No, Jim, go on, please. Go ahead, Jim. No, I I was waiting for John to answer. 
<laughs> oh, I was just going to say, I, I, it also, to me, seems to be a class that is more focused on overworld adventures than the dungeon, right? Because it's all focused on uh, weather control, uh, you know, dealing with plants. You can travel through plants, uh, you know, hold plants in case you have a problem with plants out in the world. Um, you know, I mean, all these things seem to be less utilities that are useful underground. And yeah. That's flip, flip too side many. of the thief. Right, yeah. That, that too yeah. may kind of restrict their applicability and steer people away from it. On the other hand, with cl- original D&D, you know, with the emphasis on getting lost in outdoor survival, <laughs> that could be pretty useful. It depends on the campaign. Uh, there, yeah. there are certainly plenty of overworld campaigns. And when we played that horror on the hill at uh, Gen Con, I mean, there is a dungeon there, but honestly, we were just on the hill the whole time, <laughs> like wandering around. We know there's a horror that's apparently on the hill somewhere. Yeah, dude, those are the, those are the best adventures where you spend the whole first session outside the dungeon just trying to get in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, whereas a lot of, you know, frankly, especially back in the day, a lot of campaigns just started you at the open door of the dungeon. So you know, well, if you're going to do that, then the druid. Loses a lot there, you know. But anyway, it's it there. He's colder here. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, there. Well, yeah, I, but before we stop talking about the druid, getting to the, you know, we were mentioning how you get up to a certain level and you have to start fighting other druids to to raise up and level. I would love to know, you know, how did that even get to be part of the whole druid thing? It's like you're. You know, you're a you're a nature person, and you know you're neutral. You don't you know do a lot of interacting with other people, and then all of a sudden, at some point, suddenly you have to go to a martial arts tournament, and <laughs> it's like you it's like you become a, a yeah you become a monk, and it's, you're in a Mortal Kombat game. <laughs> well, unless your whole campaign world is the size of Texas, that's a broken game mechanic too. Because think of how many thousands of druids there must be in somebody's world. <laughs> yeah. I've always preferred the very sparsely populated campaign worlds, but you're right. I mean, especially in the later games where it's either Forgotten Realms or Mastara and you've got millions of people living just in the city over here, it can it can get weird. I mean, you think your elf fighter mage has got it rough when he tops out at levels. You get up that same level as a druid and you got to go beat some guy up just to get your level. And you've got to occasionally fight off other people who are coming up to take it from you, and if they beat you, you then drop down. I mean, maybe that works in some campaigns. It, it never worked in ours. Maybe we should... I mean, it, it. it's less bad for the druid, too, than it was for the monk, right? I mean, obviously, the druid mechanic for this is based on the monk mechanic that appeared in, in Blackmore. The monk mechanic, it's, it's like, really ruthless, right? It's like, it's like you know, at fourth or fifth level that you start having these problems, and yeah. you've got to vanquish the person above you. I thought in the druid case, it, it wasn't quite so bad. Yeah, although it just seems to make more sense for the monk character to have the martial arts battle. And it just seems to, to me, it seemed to come out of left field for a druid. And all of a sudden, ah, I gotta go fight someone. Like, what? <laughs> I could just, I have this picture in my head of them playing the Greyhawk campaign and Gary going, okay, Ernie, Luke, your druids have to fight now. Go at it. <laughs> <laughs> that could you, be. you boys worked it out. I mean, I do think it's part of a broader uh, tendency that we start to see around the time of Eldritch Wizardry. You really see a bit of this in, in Blackmore and Greyhawk as well, but this notion of high 
power things, whether it's artifacts or monsters or in this case, you know, player characters even being rarer, right? And the, the, the fact that there's only one, you know, queen of all chaotic dragons, right? That there's only one of each of the artifacts we see in Eldritch Roots' tree. I think they're, they're trying to make high power things more exclusive across the board to fight off the level inflation that obviously that looked rampant to TSR. So probably this is serving that kind of greater goal of trying to create a world where being very, very powerful is a rare thing. Oh, Basically hurdles, putting hurdles in the way. Well, just, or putting, just putting the mystery back in the game. Mm-hmm. So you have more hoops to jump through. It, it can't be, you know, oh, yeah, my clear, my druid is 96 level. Didn't you know? Yeah. Well, and there shouldn't be, you know, 96, 12 level <laughs> druids, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> a world with that many powerful druids is, is uh, you know, getting pretty money haul, I guess. It's a world full of, obviously, forests because nobody touches anything in a woods. <laughs> It's a world where mistletoe, whoever, is the most valuable commodity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now All it's gold an yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah. So the druid, it's a possibility. It's fairly easy to import, depending on your game. But as we've talked about here, you might want to consider its long-term ramifications from a campaign perspective. Now let's talk about another thing, which has it does seem to be a absolute love it or hate it. Psionics. You got that right. (laughs) I'll come right out and say, I hate it. Or rather, let me qualify that. I hate it for players. Monsters with psionics are fine. Though I would say that I think it deserves a much simpler system than the one provided here. I was going to tell the story that I've heard from Tim Cask about he and Gary arguing whether or not psionics went into AD&D, except I can't remember who took which side in that argument. But apparently it was a hotly debated topic. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Gary has long said that he was prevailed upon by others. I don't know if he named Tim Cask in particular, um, but he was certainly looking to shift the blame off himself for this. Well, this is the part I do remember. Tim said that the whole the whole system was founded on them all reading uh, Doctor Strange Marvel comics. And, I, and at first I didn't understand that because I'm thinking, well, that's just magic use and you've already got magic users. But then I thought about the way the comics actually portray magic, which is different than D&D. They're always doing astral projection and Doctor Strange and uh, Baron Mordor are fighting each other mentally. And then it kind of made sense. With hoary hosts of Hoggoth in the background, yeah. Um, yeah those things are really over the top, those Doctor Strange comics are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Fighting in seventeen dimensions at once, well, so <laughs> millions this, perish. Of, so know. is the psionic system. <laughs> right, right. Say Warlock was pretty out there too. Just the few bits of the Warlock Marvel comic that I've seen. Like, Whoa! <laughs> My favorite per- portrayal of Doctor Strange was in that What If Assistant Editors Month. It's like, what if Doctor Strange and all the others were really stage magicians? <laughs> By the hoary hosts of Houdini. Doramu's like telling him to pick a card, any card. That was so I, I gather there is a, a Doctor Strange feature film on its way that I, I've heard. Yeah, yeah I heard about that. that. I'm not really sure. Ransacking the, <laughs> ransacking the back catalog here. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine what that one will be like. Yeah. Well, when and Sony, try to put it in the same universe with the Avengers. How are they going to do <laughs> When Sony and uh, 20th Century Fox own a third of your catalog still, you have to do what you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> But from my perspective, I mean, psionics is fascinating because, well, for, for several things. 
Um, you know, one, of course, just because of where Sionics came from. Um, the whole story of how, you know, John W. Campbell was, you know, an advocate for psionics back in the 50s and his famous prediction back then that within, you know, 20 years, um, psionics would be an established thing and that we would understand it with all the research that was going on. There's going to be a real power in the real world. And with the irony is ours. Right. Well, that, that, that Eldritch Wizardry came out roughly 20 years after that. So in some respects, it's a fulfillment of... <laughs> Here they are! Right. Here's your psionics. But, I mean, in the other respect, I mean, I think it it shows, again, their, the willingness of TSR to skin the same cat six different ways. And it's a, it's a magic system that is based on spell points. There have been a ton of spell point variant systems that have been proposed in the two years since D&D came out. And I, I kind of view psionics, uh, with whatever you make of the trappings of, you know, the, the John W. Campbell psionics concept as being just a, a skin around the notion that there's going to be a way to use spell points that deplete and are recoverable with rest to cast magical abilities and that this is going to be decoupled from the Vancean stuff that there was a lot of confusion and pushback about early on in D&D. So it's kind of a magic system, wink, wink. No, no, it's psionics, wink, wink. Right. I've never never considered it that way, John. I, I just thought it was a way of trying to give fighters more powers against the magic users. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an attempt to, um, it definitely does incorporate that. Not everybody gets psionics, right? Monks and druids don't. It's an interesting, uh, you know, fact about the system as they structured it. But, I mean, I, I think more than anything, it's a way to get away from the Vancian paradigm to have a, a track that does let you customize all the character classes a bit differently. And this, this is another thing. There's a lot of pressure from, from fans early on. Uh, that basically, like, every starting fighter was the same, right? Uh, every starting magic user was the same, pretty much. Um, there, there just weren't enough knobs you could twiddle. So anything that would potentially make a character different from another character by, well, th- this guy's got psionic abilities, oh my god, this is amazing, uh, was something that, you know, differentiated you from the cookie-cutter models that OD&D originally set up. Well, I can tell course, you once from one play- guy has psionic abilities, then everybody wants their character to have them. Well, we, well of course. <laughs> we tried this out in my original campaign, and I could tell you, it's great when the player characters have Sonics, but it sucks when you're up against somebody that's got them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, also, and something I found kind of interesting is that this version, the more psionic abilities you have, it actually impacts your class abilities. And that mm, doesn't, yeah. seem, doesn't seem to have transferred into AD&D, though. Right, right, right. Like if you're a magic user with Sonics, you get less spells. Mm-hmm. And if you're a fighter and you practice, they call it yoga for fighters, right? I don't know. I don't know what they mean here by yoga exactly, <laughs> but um, you know, you you lose followers. Um, right, your, your ability to have retainers is reduced by your interest in contortionism and doing the twelve postures of the sun. As people don't hang out with you anymore, dude, dude, you, you start to look disturbing. Dude, I, I love you and all, but your chakras are too lined up. I can't follow you. <laughs> and of course, in Brown Book D and D, losing followers was a bigger had a bigger impact than it did later on in the game versions. No, definitely. Uh, having retainers of various kinds was essential to these early adventures. Uh, you can't go into the Temple of the Frog without, you know, 5,000 guys. <laughs> <laughs> a small army. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so. I believe if you were a thief and you had psionics, you know, so many powers, you'd start to lose dexterity points. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, I think fighters lost, was it strength or con or something? You know, eventually, depending on how many levels they got. But yeah, there was a consequence, regardless of what your class was. Unless, like you said, Bunk and Drury, they don't get them. Yeah. It's and even- yeah, who knows how well people actually played with those detriments, right? I mean, it seems like players were eager to ignore the things that were kind of career-limiting decisions. Yeah, like <laughs> level limits. Yeah, nope, I've, right. I've, I've played in very, very few games where they have actually, you know, had the level limits in place for demi-humans. Yeah. Oh, my God. This is why I love Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG. It's 3D6 in order. It's right there really? in the rule book. Yeah. And, and, oh, my God. I mean, it's the very first rule we broke. Really? Jim, <laughs> Jim loves DCC. I, I was not aware of that. <laughs> Just play, just fun in you. Okay, because, because that's a completely different rule set. Yes, <laughs> yes. Although I must say, Liz has said that I have beaten that joke through the the horse into the substrata of the planet to the molten core. So I am no longer allowed to use that joke anymore. Mm-hmm. It's true. I'll just say the word taco instead. So. All listeners will know when I say taco. That's I, I'm telling that joke. Anyway. <laughs> so, so John, so, yeah, did, did I you mean, guys play with Sonics back in the day? Yes, I uh, did. I oh, yeah. sorry. Uh, I did as a when I was a DM because in junior high or middle school, all my, as soon as Sonics were there, everybody wanted Sonics. Everybody wanted Sonics. And they would sit there and roll and roll and roll until they got that high percentage level to actually get the psionics. Well, I'm throwing this character away because he doesn't have psionics. So I'm going to roll again and again and again and again. I hated it as a DM. I just hated it. Not only for the concept, but it was just so, the system they provided was so clunky um, and tons of tables. I just – I didn't like it. I had to ban it from my game and and nobody liked me for that, but – Especially since I was the only one that DM'd regularly, so they all just sat around and complained. But you know, well, and they and want it, their psionics; they can DM. <laughs> and if you don't have your psionics and you meet any of the monsters in Eldritch Wizardry, all of which have enormous psionic potential, right? I mean, yeah. things that make sense, like the mind flayer or the intellect devourer, but also like the key ring and stuff, right? It's or even the gray ooze, right? Right? You know, it's like, oh, well, this is a normal monster until you have psionics. <laughs> And the effects of a psionic attack upon non-psionics are so damaging, right? I mean, yeah. it's the defender intelligence, you know, you're either stunned, slept. I mean, if you're smart, you are permanently insane, <laughs> you know, if you're attacked. Yeah. It's, it's like the kids in the hall skit with the guy going crush, you know, catch your head, catch your head. Dave Arneson used to do that, actually, when he would talk about players making stupid decisions. He would have this thumb down onto the table. <laughs> and go like, yeah, squash, squash. Yeah, he loved to. Squash, right? That's awesome. Can't play with a flathead. Gosh, gosh. <laughs> so what about you, Jim? We, uh, our experiment with it probably lasted under six months. We tried it. We played it. You know, didn't like it. For mainly the reasons you said, it turned out you had to... In, Having started in AD and D, it was you know a roll of zillion characters to get one with Sonics, and mm-hmm. and then as soon as you face anything else with Sonics, you you know it's it's not fun. Yeah, you have to 
pummel your sonic strength down, and then it's like boom, 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 boom. You think combat takes a while? Well, I, 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 I didn't. It had never occurred to me that this was just a way to bolt a spell point system onto the game. And now that I understand that, I can see what they were doing. But just being, you know, eighteen and playing, I'm like, why do you need this in this game? You've got spells. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And when I was a kid, to me, Sonics belonged in Traveler. Right. You know, not right. D&D, what? You know? Yeah, and why, I mean, if you listen to, you know, all the spell effects, they're all cellular adjustment. They're all talking about, like, molecules. And, I mean, it's, it's really all sci-fi stuff. Yeah, I mean, if you yeah. – the, the, the terminology is either Freudian, right, id, insinuation, ego, with, <laughs> or it's, you know, these real narrow sci-fi terms. So the way they cast it, it definitely does belong more in, like, a traveler or something like that than in, in a fantasy setting. I mean, God knows I like a little genre mash in my game. You know, Magic User with a blaster rifle and Expedition to Berry Peaks is sweet, but you wouldn't want everybody to have a blaster rifle in the campaign. Because mm-hmm. now you're not playing right. D&D anymore. Yeah. You're playing Thundar the Barbarian. Which is fine if that's what you're wanting to play, but it's, you know, taco. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Lord. All right. So I think we've beat up Sonics then. And yeah. send us all your pro Sonics emails, please. That's yeah. right. Tell us why we're absolutely wrong about Sionics. Or why we're right. Saverdiepodcast at gmail.com. And let's move on into DM Fiat. Nope. Sorry. What? Oh. Nope, you're wrong. Look it up. I don't have to look it up. It's common knowledge. Nope. No, no, no! Fiatings by DMs. And now we're going to talk about it from the DM perspective, which we had already started touching on. Psychic monsters. Which are great. I, you know, I'm, I, as a DM, I'm firmly behind monsters having sonics. Me too. And there are a lot of classics in this little expansion. Yeah. I mean, the Mind Flayer, which, you know, I th- didn't it originally show up in Strategic Review before here? Yes. That's right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's face it, without sonic powers, it's not really an illithid, is it? You know, it's... it's. So they, they had, like, a proto-sonic power, didn't they, even in Strategic Review? They had, like, a psi blast or something? Oh, yeah, it was just kind of like a special power, and this is the effects, rather than all the stupid tongue, which, frankly, I much prefer than having to go through the tables and blah, blah, and stuff. Yeah, because, I mean, it, those tables, they, they're really reminiscent. You know, they remind me of the chainmail uh, jousting mechanism. Where, you know, you choose where the position where your shield is, like high, low, or whatever, and then the, the, your opponent chooses where their lance is pointing, and you just kind of have this convergence table of how effective it is. This yeah. is very similar, right? In the way you choose your attack mode, you choose your defense mode, you reveal at the same time what they are, and, uh, it's pretty arbitrary. Yeah, it, uh, should, it should be a little a, booklet like Ace of Aces, where you're flipping yeah, pages okay. going, I make this sonic move. It was also this, there was a board game, uh, put out by Avalon Hill called Magic Realm, which had a very similar combat system. It's like you had to put a little counter, whether it's on your shield or on your sword or on your, you know, whether you dodge, parry, and then you compare the two, and it was like, ugh. Oh, that, that was, those were huge in these were like, Chivalry and Sorcery had a mechanic like that, and among the many combat mechanics that they rolled out. But yeah, I pulled up the, 
the original Mind Flayer, he has a mind blast, and the effects of it are pretty similar to the effects we see in Eldritch Wizardry for a, a, a psionic attack on a non-psionic. If you have low intelligence, it's just death. Yeah, <laughs> you have awesome. high intelligence, it's, it's permanent insanity. <laughs> Those are your... Yeah. <laughs> and although it is fun to roll up your uh, PCs to have random... You know, insanities. That's always fun, but you know. <laughs> but these. So yeah, I mean, there, there's an elect devourers. There's all sorts of fun stuff in there. The Kirin, which is the Oriental unicorn, essentially. Well, they were getting um, their, their stuff wired together by the supplement because remember, Blackmore was kind of that mishmash of uh, new monsters, uh, some of the some of which were kind of lame. But I mean, Eldritch Wizardry. It's like a greatest hits of everything you you love in AD and D, which is. Uh, creatures that petrify. Yeah, well, uh, like John was saying, you know, it's kind of a, it was a anthology, as it were, almost. Um, I guess the best. And I would assume they would pick out the best, but that got sent in, or certainly the stuff they agreed with the most. Um, I would say they're all hits of the things that they, they put in here, but there, there's some good stuff. You know, I don't know how much the, the Sioux monster <laughs> added, or, you know, there's something. <laughs> what, 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 would, what would modern D&D be without the Cataplias, or however you say that? <laughs> the Cataplipas, or, yeah, I don't, uh, yeah. I mean, and the worst part is that's mythological. That wasn't totally made up, which really no, kind of surprised me. Yeah, that but, goes back uh, to the medieval beast areas, yeah. But liches, yeah. come on, liches and demons. Demons, yeah. Demons. How can you have D and D fighting against evil without demons? And and that's that's another great one. I mean, and I particularly liked in the beginning when they just called them the types, you know, because it gave the implication that these are just a sampling. As a DM, throw any demons you want to together because, well, they're chaotic, so you know they're going to be all sorts of weird things. John, I have a question I, I mean, for you with your historical yeah. acumen. The illustrations yeah. of demons in Eldritch Wizardry make it very clear that they were either drawings intended to be sculpted into miniatures or that they were drawings of miniatures because half of them have literally little bases on their feet. Do you have any they idea do, yes. what's up with that? Not off the top of my head. I, I, to my recollection, these weren't being made to any particular specification. Um, so they certainly weren't extant at the time. You you couldn't buy these at the time. They're not pictures of miniatures you could actually get. So Dave Sutherland um, wasn't basing them on miniatures that they already had or anything. I don't I don't go back that far. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, who would have made them then? Um, well, like the boule was a little plastic Japanese dinosaur. Kind oh, of, of course, yeah, and the rust. What a succubus. Yeah. But I mean, the the people who actually made miniatures specifically for fantasy wargame that had bases like that, those didn't have bases. Those were little dime store horrors, right? Um, this at this point would be Scrooby, you know, minifigs, and I mean, you know, what were they making at the time that this went to press? Um, Was Heritage back then that far? Heritage, and, they were around so, then hey, as a company. I don't know if they were yeah. fantasy miniatures yet. So by Gen Con they were. Um, I mean, in the the we we saw a, a whole bunch of companies come in seventy five, and then by seventy six you see uh, Ralph Partha. I believe that's when they first showed up. And uh, yeah, I, I I I don't think that anybody could have been making these at the time. Maybe they were though designed specifically so someone could make them into miniatures. I'm sure the succubus would have been very popular. Well, it could have been the Quite. other way around. It could have been TSR pitching th- those companies here. This is what we want you to make. Yeah, or 
Sutherland using drawings he's done for two purposes. Yeah. Did he do the? Yeah, I know Bell didn't do the art anymore, but were all those Sutherlands or? They all appear to be. All of them. Some of them have his initials on them, but there are a few that don't have his initials on them. So they may have been one of the other artists credited in the front. But I'd say Sutherland definitely at least did half of the... Yeah. Including Orcus. How can you not love a game without Orcus in it? <laughs> it's it's <laughs> not D&D without Orcus. <laughs> I mean, it embodies everything about D&D. There's, there's, there's a classic demon prince in D&D named after a Roman god with which he has absolutely nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Other than both being in an underworld, uh, yeah, like, like like Bahamut, you know. Okay, yeah, there was a Babylonian god called Tiamat, but this isn't anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, I'm not really sure how to... much. Go ahead. How, how how much historical research was really being done at this point? Right, uh, right. You know, yeah, and and most of the medieval demon devils' names came from what amounted to pagan gods that the you know. The Christianity wanted to convince people not to worship anymore, so made them into demons or devils. You know, Baal, Moloch, a lot of those I'm original just, pagan deities. I'm a huge fan of Gary Gygax, but I can just see him sitting at the desk having Stan Lee moments going, you know, Dormammu. Hey, that sounds good. Let's use it. <laughs> oh, yeah. No doubt. So, yeah, um, I was always happier with you know, the idea of random monsters, and to me, nothing tends to adapt to that better than a demon. So, I was happy. And it allowed them to rename the Balrog and get away from Tolkien. Though not in the first edition of Eldritch Wizard Tree. True, true. Oh, is, is this right in the transition where they got the C&D from Tolkien Estate? No, it was, that was almost a year later, actually. So, the earliest printings of Eldritch Wizard Tree is still due for the Type 6 demon, say, Balrog. Yeah, what, what were there, like, seven or eight printings of Eldritch Wizardry? Um, and like I said, sure. they did from 76 to 79. I'm personally looking at a fifth printing copy in my hands right now, and definitely at that point it had gone over. It no longer said Balrog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I have a first and a ninth in front of me. The ninth was from November of 79. That's the one you've um, got. The first... The first we'll assume that's the last then. Yeah. Um, okay. And so, yeah, in the, in the first, though, uh, you do have, for the Type 6 demon, um, the introductory text says, these rather rare demons are sometimes known as Balrogs, <laughs> and as such have been partially described in other works, Chainmail and Dungeons and & Dragons, and then it goes on to discuss them as Balrogs <laughs> for the rest of the paragraph. <laughs> in other works, take that, Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> They had no inkling at this point that there was even going to be a problem. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, didn't the uh, Warriors of Mars thing they did was without the Burroughs estate to approval, too? It was, and, you know, I, I've looked a bit to try to find a paper trail around that. I haven't yet found the smoking gun that, that you know, like a C&D from that. We do know who gave the C&D to D&D for the Tolkien stuff and, and why. And it was really more actually about the Battle of the Five Armies game than it was about the Tolkien references in D&D. It's just once the Battle of the Five Armies game had 
come to the awareness of the intellectual property holders. They wanted to go through everything else and make sure that there weren't any other problems. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I haven't yet found a smoking gun for Warriors of Mars. It just very suddenly drops off the product list, and uh, I'm willing to believe the, the lore that it was the C&D that they got, but I haven't seen anything directly to substantiate that. Well, well would you say it's fair to say that the use of this "quote unquote" copyrighted information by TSR was just honest, you know, basically thinking there wouldn't be a big deal, rather than um, let's see what we can get away with, kind of thing. Yeah, um, they probably didn't think it would be a big deal. I mean, remember as well that when this stuff started, these works were extremely obscure, right? I mean, when you're talking about something that, that is for the war gaming community that has a thousand copy print run, you're not going to get the attention of major intellectual property holders. And, yeah, kind of like I mean, fanzines. Yeah, um, and you see this for comics fandom as well. I mean, there have been various times when those fanzines rose to the point where they, you know, the major comics uh, concerns went after people with fanzines. But for very small press things, it isn't that much of a concern. And it, like I said, it, the problem was really the TSR got to the point where it was marketing Battle of the Five Armies at the same time that the Rankin Bass um, Hobbit was you know, actually going on TV. And so the intellectual property holders of that were very concerned about finding, you know, was anything riding on their coattails? Because they had licensed products for board games and things like that, and they wanted to make sure that there wasn't anyone who was, you know, benefiting from this who wasn't a licensee. Mm-hmm. For our younger listeners who didn't grow up with uh, Peter, or for who didn't grow up in a world without Peter Jackson movies, I can tell you I was in high school in the 70s, and if you wanted to completely ostracize yourself from the popular crowd, the easiest way to do that was to walk around with a copy of The Hobbit. <laughs> yeah. It was it was a fringe cult thing back then. Well, even in the early 80s, it was too. Um, I would have never walked around with a copy of Eldritch Wizardry, mostly because... I went to a private school at that time, so I probably would have been thrown out or something because of the cover. But <laughs> you know, I, but, I mean, but, but compare though. I mean, when we talk about this being a fringe thing, by 1966, you know, and the after the original pirating pub paperback editions of Tolkien had come out, um, you know, when Ballantyne was issuing them, they were selling you know like a million copies a year. Um, it was not. It was not a fringe thing in that sense. Right? We were talking about the difference between selling a thousand copies of something a year and a million copies of something in a year. Well, right. Um, right there, right, there right. was a well, major cultural interest in Tolkien, and it was really just the obscurity of D and D that kept it below the radar. Of that. Yeah, and wasn't there like a major change to copyright law around seventy six? In seventy six, there was. Right? Yeah, yeah, so that it didn't go into effect until January first of seventy eight is when the Copyright Act of seventy six went into effect. But. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, the things that actually let Tolkien be pirated and Tolkien, the intellectual property situation of Lord of the Rings was very uncertain um, for, for some time there. Those were related to weird uh, international trade issues of what you need to do if you have a copyright in England to get that copyright to be in effect in the United States. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it has to do with how many copies you're importing versus having printed locally. And I guess they cross some threshold. And so there was some blunder on the part of the English intellectual property holders that led to that whole original mid-60s piracy of Tolkien. Okay. All right. Well, getting back toward our topic, <laughs> let's talk about the other thing for DMs that uh, this game ha- this supplement has to offer, and that's Artifacts. Oh, my Lord. 
I, it was like it was like going back home again, rereading through those. Isn't it? I mean, there are some things in there that even today, I think players of third and fourth edition, you can mention things like the Eye of Vecna. Or had it, had it. <laughs> and, 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 the Sword of Toss, or or you know. Heward's mystical organ, and they even they know what you're talking about, at least in concept. And the giant robot lobster. <laughs> oh, yeah, the giant robot lobster. Which one was that? The hang on, it's Luco. I can't remember the beginning of it though. Mighty, Mighty servant, servant of Luco. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure that's a complete coincidence. It's. If my memory's right, uh, Tim Cass created it, and it is named for Luke. Okay. Well, it's like the Ring of Gags. I'm sure that's totally coincidence, too. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, when you when you look at how these artifacts ended up being a part of AD&D. So this whole section was kind of appropriated lock, stock, and barrel for the DM's Guide, but with, with a lot of really tiny changes. The Ring of Gags is one of them, where in the original version it was called Gax, just G-A-X, whereas in the DMG it's G-A-X-X. And instead of having merely eight facets in the ring, there are nine facets in OD&D. And of course, the the uh, power tables are different in the DMG than they are in, in what we see here. But this all goes back to uh, Tim Cask's original thing about how we can make um, the, the elements of the system more surprising to players uh, that he was talking about in the introduction to EW. Um, by having these random powers that could be generated so that players wouldn't know when they found the invulnerable coat of iron what its powers are actually going to be, he hoped that would keep some of the mystery and the freshness. Each referee could kind of configure these for use in their own campaigns. And uh, how effective that really is as a measure, or whether whether that's providing a service we couldn't just do ourselves by inventing magic items with our own powers and descriptions is obviously an or, open question. But yeah, it's interesting. or the consequences for that matter were kept vague. You know, mm-hmm. that that's the part I really liked is that magic items now had possible you know limitations to them, or not limitations, but you know there are prices to pay for using it. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, uh, you know, it's, some of them are, are very whimsical of the, um, things like it. some, you, some you're just killed, right? There's a lot of arbitrary death or, um, yeah, things like that. I think it's a brilliant game mechanic because I feel you, John, because when we played, we played long enough ago that we were just the fly by the seat of the pants, make it up ourselves, which makes me the worst person on the show to answer emails because we get emails all the time like, well, I want to do a mass combat. What rules system do you recommend the best? When it was 1980 and we were playing, we just made everything up. But here, but, but, but here are some instructions on how to do that if you need them. And in a way, I think that might be part of the problem. I mean – I feel fortunate in that I learned the, I mean, I got, my dad bought me the Holmes basic set, but I was lucky enough to start playing with a group of guys in their thirties when I'm like nine or 10. And they're using Brown book, but more importantly, they taught me how to be a proper DM, you know, how to put your foot down, how to just make up on the fly and it's okay. Make any ruling you want, just stay consistent. But, you know, if you're just buying the book off the shelf without a group, that can be a hard thing to transmit through text, you know? Mm. Mm. Well, especially well, I as, would think, anyway. as, as you're trying to market the game to younger and younger groups of players. 
because like Liz has talked about how tightly they followed the Holmes edition and didn't role play much in the beginning because they were just trying to comprehend what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, John, but you know, D and D was originally aimed for adult war gamers, right? I mean, sure. Adult is, uh, you know, if you look at in the original Lake Geneva group and ask who of the Lake Geneva Tactical Studies Association latched on to fantasy and who didn't, it was certainly a younger slant, right? It was people like like Rob and, you know, Ernie who are really obsessed with the fantasy stuff, whereas the old, uh, you know, World War II gamers like Mike Reese and Leon Tucker were perhaps less interested in this when it came up. So, yeah, 18 plus, I guess I should say. Sure, sure. Um, What was Luke when this came out? About five? Yeah, Slick was born in November of 1970, so uh, he was four, four or so, yeah. yeah. And, of course, immediately started playing. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you had to start young in the Gygax house. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I can see where it might even involve a book where you – you know, you're given a mechanic that's a rule, but at the same time, it's a rule to tell you to make up stuff, you know? I can see maybe that's where this, the artifacts idea was trying to push people. It was trying to push people to where when you found this, you know, when you, when you found this weird, um, eye, right? <laughs> at the end of an adventure, um, you didn't know what was going to happen when you put it into your skull. And, you know, you didn't know what powers are going to be conferred by that. And that's, you know, different from when you find a staff of wizardry, right? And, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody knows what a staff of wizardry is. Nobody needs to, you know, do a legend lore on it or something. Um, they, they wanted to get that kind of uncertainty and that kind of, uh, caution about the use of these things. Because, as you say, there are so many side effects and potentially negative, negative drawbacks up to you die. <laughs> that could happen from using these things. I think it's, yeah. a, it's a mark of anything when it reaches enough of a cult status to wor- be worthy of uh, satire and uh, parody because the most... <laughs> the bro- head of Vecna. <laughs> yeah, the most brilliant thing in Hackmaster is Jolly Blackburn's head of Vecna. And the best part of it is, apparently, that story was true. I mean, I've heard that story for decades. I, I, I think this is like one of those apocryphal urban legend stories that just has gone around forever. But So it, it's uncertain whether it's true. I thought uh, Jolly Blackburn had mentioned that it had happened in his group, or am I misremembering that? I think you are misremembering. Okay. Okay. I, I, I know. I, I heard it. that story in the 90s. So, I mean. Yeah. I'm sure it could happen in more than one campaign. But yeah, I was gonna say, but I'll bet we've all gamed with somebody that we can go, yeah, they'd do that. They would yeah. do that. I mean, but when you think about it, realistically, what adventurer is going to come across a body part and immediately think to themselves, hey, I'm going to cut off my own hand or gouge out my own eye so I can put this thing in its place. That's a that's a valid point. How I mean, often, realistically, is this even going to occur to someone? I am going to deliberately mutilate myself right here, right now, so I can shove this whatever Liz, <laughs> into t- the appropriate socket. Two weeks that's a-, a valid point. Two weeks ago in my home campaign, they were standing in line to voluntarily jump in the maw of a purple worm. Who knows why players do things. You did it and it looked like a good idea. It's like that Jim Wobbler knows what he's doing, so I'm going to do it too. Yeah, it's Jim's fault why I my group started setting fire to stuff. I didn't do it. 
It's true. I thought you did it to deliberately kill off your characters. I had those two level zeros I wanted to kill, and I just ran them up to it to fight it. I didn't jump in the mouth. <laughs> I was trying. I was trying not to be completely transparent to the DM about killing the characters. I just accidentally led the lemming charge. <laughs> so I remember you reading artifacts in your campaigns. Mm. Oh, very, very rarely. I can only, actually. I can only think of one time when I put an artifact in. We were young. We had lots. <laughs> I had a. I read a campaign for a while that had a, a mini game in it. Um, that was. It was like a chess-like game. It was kind of like there was a. It was a board war game that everybody played in the world, and the there were, however, this set of um, artifact pieces for it that actually were these like ultra powerful magic items. And at one point, uh, the players in my game played in this great tournament, and one one from this tournament, one of these artifacts from this that actually allowed them to date to another plane and things like that. I can't really think of any other time I've had like an artifact in 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 one of my worlds, but I got the well, Eye of Vecna because it sort of just got passed around our campaign. The guy who had it and wanted to get rid of it finally <laughs> figured out some deal with a his god and a wish spell combined, and he got rid of it. But the condition was he had to make give it to somebody else so I woke up with it in my socket one day give us back the eye <laughs> uh. yeah I, I've obviously in middle school and junior high they they pretty much you know all my players I want to find this I want to find this you know I want to go to Gamma World and get all this stuff and then go hunt down Cthulhu you know and stuff like that but uh as time has gone on, I've used them less and less. Normally, they're like a really good MacGuffin to, you know, for a campaign to be based around, I've, I've found. But, yeah, they don't often really – you don't have players generally wandering around. Although, I'm sure we've all had the new player who shows up, who's moved into town and wants to play his old character, and they just happen to have. <laughs> the Wand of Orcus. We killed him. Yeah, the eye, the hand, and the left kneecap of Vecna. (laughs) I actually got it. Have you guys heard of this project? It's a thing that's coming out. Um, A guy named Tim Hutchinson, his name I believe, who's putting together a a compilation of kids modules from the eighties. This I think was kickstarted like last year. Um, and there's a module in it that's called the Habitation of the Stone Giant Lord. That's kind of like a take on the the uh, G series modules. It's a really amazing project. I've been working with him on on some aspects of this, but I'm reminded of it because there's one one of the eight modules that is collected in this is basically a really simple eight room dungeon with virtually nothing described, except at the end you get the Ring of Gax. And it's, it was obviously totally architected for the sole purpose of some lucky adventurer being able to, as painlessly and quickly as possible, acquire the Ring of Gas. <laughs> um, that's that's two little kids that were best friends forever. Right, right. Oh yeah, I actually had you know, when I was like eleven or twelve. One of my friends ran a dungeon that yeah, literally it was a hole into one room. Where there was an orc with a dagger guarding a million gold pieces. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. So it's not even a slice of pie. Just a million. Not pieces. even a slice of pie. Well, no, with a million gold pieces, which we could always carry, of course. <laughs> All one million, we went back to town and then went to the DM's guide and started buying stuff. So you know, because we thought, well, if there's a GP value on it, so you can like go to the store and buy it, right? 
hey, we were 11 <laughs> or 12. What do you want? I, so anyway. I would make fun of that group, except we just did that a few months ago when uh, Todd ran us through Expedition at Barrier Peaks because we started with 12-level characters. So that was the pre-gen thing. 2,000 gold per level. Hit the DMG guide. Get what you want. I'm like, get what you want. Really? Okay. Yeah, except with the barrier peaks, it, you can afford to be that generous because, well, yeah, doesn't. You'll still get vaporized if you do the wrong things. So. Yeah, it's like when Jim Ward tells you before you start up a game at a convention that he's running. You know, t- tell me what you want. I'll let you have anything. It's like. Okay, why is he letting us have anything? All right. Because <laughs> we're going to die anyway. Okay, well, let's, see, let's see how good you guys are. 12th level magic user, I've got 24,000 gold pieces to spend. What do you think I bought? Hmm. I'll give a you thousand a flasks of oil? I bought one item for 20,000 gold pieces and then spent the rest on potions. <laughs> what? Robe of the Magi? <laughs> Deck of many things? Ah. Uh. Come on, John, you can do this. I mean, uh, so I, I need the DMG price guide, Staff of Wizardry, I don't know. Plus, sink, plus six ring of protection. Oh. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. AD&D. <sighs> so, yeah, on artifacts. That awkward, on that awkward tangent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Have any of you tried using the power or limitations tables concept with non-artifact magic items? Hmm. I've toyed with it, except some, as John mentioned, some of those consequences are pretty rough to put on a plus one dagger. Yeah. I mean, of course, we all have cursed items of various kinds, right? And right. I'm not sure that I've, I mean, I'm sure that some of the curses do correspond to things that you, that are listed here. I mean, it's a pretty long list. And the one in the DMG, obviously, is even longer than the one here. Um, yeah, so I'm sure I've had cursed items that have some of these properties. There's there's one that causes insanity. I've certainly had cursed items that cause insanity. Mm-hmm. I've had that I think it could be interesting if you had a if you had a campaign set up where the players were going through a world where magic in general was considered to be very, shall we say, a an iffy gray area. Yeah. Magic is very rarely considered to be completely good and beneficial. You know, all your spellcasters mm-hmm. are going to be neutral at best. Sort of a Carcosa sort of Yeah, setting. and, mm. you know, in a setting like that, that could certainly be very interesting where no matter what kind of magic item you find, chances are good there's going to be at least a little bit of something to it that, you know, you have to pay a price. Glenn pissed a picked a bad episode to miss because apparently the way Odinus runs his home campaign he hands out you know artifacts and levels like a candy store he could have talked about this yeah, although well, I heard that they, he everyone got killed off by Odinus so <laughs> yeah they they restarted their campaign using Labyrinth Lord and you know remember Glenn was talking all great about his gnome yeah dead <laughs> well, you know high risk high, re- high reward high risk Oh, I know. He he loved that character so much he cartooned it. He must be devastated. Yeah. Or probably did the old D&D thing of rolled up his twin brother. (laughs) Bobby, Robbie, Jobby. Wait, this is old school. (laughs) Whose entire mission in life is to find a tooth or a fingernail to get his brother raised dead with. Exactly. (laughs) 
All right. Well, if you've had experience with artifacts or demons, etc., give us a write in at saberdiepodcastgmail.com. Now let's move over into products of your imagination. Your dungeon master has placed you in a dreadfully precarious position. They're right next to you. Well, all you do is we play the characters we talked about earlier when we run around and stuff. I want to show you a trick Mother showed me when you weren't around. Use your lightning bolt. Victory is yours. I'm attacking the darkness. (laughs) Dungeons and Dragons games. Products of your imagination. You're not there. You're getting drunk. Products of your imagination. Just to remind everybody... What? Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> this is, we talk about the item as a product for sale, both as, you know, at its time and its usefulness and availability to people today. I think for the latter, until Wizards of the Coast puts out that premium box set at the end of the year, finding it's going to be kind of tough, at least Without paying, you know, 30, 40 bucks for it. I don't know what's going on on eBay right now. I'll tell you real quick. <laughs> okay. Well, let's start with Liz's favorite thing layout. Woohoo! <laughs> well, I. It's much the same quality, in my opinion, as, you know, the other brown books that we have discussed in the past. Um, you've. Things are, you know, pretty much black and white laid out. You've got the lists of monsters that are not in any discernible order whatsoever. So you can't go by alphabetical to try and figure out, you know, where your stuff is. And same with spell explanations too. You know, you say you've got a bunch of first level spells and it's all over the place as far as alphabetical. So you're just kind of going down trying to find, okay, where's the one I'm looking for here? Um, so in that sense, I have found the Brown books and my beloved Holmes to be, you know, a bit it, – it's hard to go through these things and, and find what you're looking for. I mean, I will say Holmes is better than the Brown books, but even so, you've got – weird placement of things and you've got you're talking about combat in one section here and then several pages on you talk about a little bit of combat again and then several pages on there's something else so you have to be willing to take your time to look through things Um, and again with a layout perspective you've got You've got three-column stuff, and then further down on the same page, you've got two-column stuff, and your basic text is, you know, just one column across the board. On the other hand, people didn't, you know, make that big a deal about layout and art as they do nowadays. So you really can't put the same type of expectations on the older stuff. You know, like I've said, it's it's like fanzines, and I love my fanzines. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting point, and it's something I brought up in an earlier episode or two, and John, maybe you can corroborate me on this. I think D&D fans are occasionally more willing to forgive 
the errors and layout, et cetera, et cetera, the Brown books by the statement of, well, it was the mid-70s. And I suppose that has an influence, but, I mean, Avalon Hill and SPI were publishing in the mid-70s, and their rules layouts were generally more coherent. So do you think that's a justified comment, or are we just making excuses? Well, I mean, but let's think back about that a bit. So Avalon Hill got started in, what, 54? Um, mm-hmm. They were producing the general by 64. Um, and, you know, if you look at the early generals, they're of about the same production quality and layout as, say, the early strategic reviews are. Yeah, um, yeah. And, I mean, you know, if you've been at this for 20 years, uh, you're going to have a, a decidedly better quality. Um, TSR was choosing very inexpensive <laughs> printers for these things. Um, you know, they, they did not have, you know, staff designers that had anything like the kind of experience or contacts that you had, even at, at SPI, right? I mean, Strategy and Tactics was started in, what, 67? And had been, you know, got the injection from Poltron, and they had a relatively credible design staff based out of New York at the time. Um, so I, I think part of it is just it's a two-year-old company, right, that, that's making this stuff. And uh, organizationally, I agree, these, the, the choice they made in the supplements to um, organize them around the, the sections of the three regional books, right? So there is mm-hmm. a, you know, Men and Magic, a Monsters and Treasure, and an Underworld and Wilderness section. And you have to sort it from that. You know, it's, it's really a terrible decision in terms of making these legible or possible to find anything. And uh, I, I guess the best I'd say about this is it doesn't seem it doesn't seem worse than Blackmore. I think it's probably better than Blackmore in terms of it, its layout and production. Uh, some of the headers are cleaner, the tables are cleaner. Um, maybe the organization is is marginally better. <laughs> so for for the context in which it appeared, I'd say it's at least par for the course. Yeah, I'd probably be more forgiving of the splitting it up to the three books subsections in the in the the supplement. I'd be more forgiving if they had, were doing like the Moldvay Cook, where they printed things intentionally because they expected you to cut them apart and put them in a three ring binder. And right. you know, if say you really could take the pages in the mon- in the Minute Magic section, cut them out and add them to the back of a you know three ring binder. Men and magic, but you can't. Right. Well, let me so let me jump it, in a second because uh, my first graphic design job was fresh out of high school. I got a co-op one summer in '78, so I almost go back this far for actually mechanically, physically producing this kind of stuff. And it's easy to forget that today we've all got computers, and with a few hundred dollars, you've got InDesign, and you could lay out potentially a really nice layout. Back then, there was a huge amount of capital cost equipment to do this stuff. I mean, typesetters were the size of a desk. You had to have a a whole camera room just dedicated to shooting your your art and press type and all kinds of equipment that costs money. And a little, you know, young game company doesn't run right out the door and set up a whole layout and design department at one time back then. Yeah, so they probably did a lot of that through their publisher, I would think, whatever company they were hiring to do the actual printing. Well, Tim and the guys who were there could tell you specifically, but I'm, you know, it could have been anything as simple as just waxers and one typesetter and the printer did the rest, or they may have handed the manuscript to the printer to lay out in some cases. Mm-hmm. And the, for the early ones here, the graphic printing company of Lake Geneva did, did the majority of these. I think, though, by Eldritch Wizardry, they may have outsourced it to somewhere else. 
Um, but they they clearly did Greyhawk and uh, uh, Blackmore as well. Okay, so that there is a level of forgiveness there. It maybe to specify a bit more. It is the seventies, and what could be afforded by a young company in the seventies might be a a better way to specify that. The thing that's been made way too much of is that cover. And because um, if uh, D&D had penetrated to the rural part of Kentucky I grew up in, this would have been the book that sold me on it because I was going to the, you know, the Quickie Mart every week and buying the black and white savage sort of Conan. And, and, you know, there was side boob in those two. And I'm, you know, a young teenager. Right. I mean, they, 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 they got themselves in a spot where they got singled out for attention for that because it wasn't that big a deal in the 70s. Yeah. And I mean, in fairness, you know, the, the succubus graphic, which is perhaps the most explicit of these, is, it's been pretty barbied, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not very anatomically explicit. And very true. You know, there's, you know, really nothing there. <laughs> it's a blank slate. <laughs> I mean, in 1976, you certainly could have gone to the Cincinnati Art Museum and Art Museum and seen all the nudes you wanted. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, as, well, I won't say explicit, but as quite, you know, dark, pseudo-satanically implicating cover, you know, was that the cover, or was it really more the covers of the three AD&D hardbacks that were the real instigators around the time of the Egbert, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, because you got to admit, you know, hardbacks with big demons on them doesn't help your image when people are screaming yeah. at your satanic you know <laughs> it's a good question and of course by the time deities and demigods came out which was a little later than the egbert thing um i mean you could almost see that as a shot over the bow of the religious right um, yeah i mean this is really explicitly we're gonna talk here about what is to you paganism <laughs> and you know engage people in a game in which you know they they are they are adhering to this paganism yeah which is kind of a a marketing thing today, but I suppose it might have been true even back then. There's no such thing as bad publicity. Well, I mean, and the 70s are such a weird time. I mean, it's not like they put Jesus into deities and demigods, right? But they did put the Hindu gods in there, and that's an active present-day religion. But in the 70s, nobody in America was worried about that. Yep. Well, and remember that this did all appear in gods, demigods, and heroes before deities and demigods as well. So at least most of it did. Um, and you see this in the dragon, you know, as more things were, were added as well incrementally there. And remember, too, that, um, you know, this was an era of kind of new age enthusiasm. Um, this was near where Avalon Hill in 74, the year that D&D came out, was publishing its, its witchcraft set and its black magic set. These were intended not as games. These were occult tools that they were just like openly selling right to that kind of yeah they were in like bookcase format too weren't they right right (laughs) they're they're really amazing if you see these things i mean the you know the promises i forget which one it's on the back of i think black magic that the rituals have been altered to make sure you won't summon any bad spirits (laughs) like which is a great statement to make because then it's like, well, it's not summoning any evil spirits. Well, yeah, we did that for your safety. <laughs> Possessions over four hours are not normal, and you should get told psychiatrist. <laughs> oh lord! So anyway, do you find it on eBay? Yeah, uh, we've got price ranges from twenty to a hundred dollars. Ooh, oh, 
And yeah, twenty. Uh, that's you know. I just I just bid on the twenty dollar one, so you're gonna have to top me. <laughs> <laughs> so there. Okay. Well, um, as far as content goes, usefulness of content. Would you say? We'll start with you, Jim. Highly useful. I mean, if, if you're going to run a brown book game, you absolutely have to have this, in my opinion. And um, I really like what you said about if you're just running basic D&D and you want to run druids, I like this version. I mean, for all the clunky layout and kind of wonky rules writing style, I like this version better than what's in RC. Mm. Because by RC, they're starting to turn the druid more into like a control party member instead of a, just a neutral cleric. Right. John? No, I agree. I mean, I think you need you need the druids, you need the artifacts. I think they do add a real dimension to the game. Uh, I think you need the demons. Uh, we, you know, the real argument is just do you need psionics? <laughs> um, <laughs> there are these two like little things, like the the combat turn thing I was talking about that are in there as well uh, that may, maybe are, are superfluous. But the druids, the artifacts, the demons alone, I think justify the price of admission. On a side note, does anyone know anyone who's actually tried that combat system? No. Or that that initiative system, I should say. So that that may be the first place that actually it describes the melee round being broken down into six segments. Now that notion, because it got into AD&D, turned out to be a critical one. But I don't think the adjusted dex bonus that determined on which segment you act is in AD&D. Mm-hmm. So okay, I think it's just a straight initiative role. So, I mean, it, you could see this as being at least a step towards that six-segment approach that that we have there and and for that it's influential yeah and on a side note as i mentioned during blackmore they mentioned the term dungeon master for the first time as a in an official product as referring to dave arneson but i believe in this forward they uh tim actually refers to dungeon mastering doesn't he yeah, there's, I think, several references to DMs in here. Yeah, so you, um, know, you start getting it as a term in lieu of GM. Well, no. so, so really in lieu of referee is the thing that they yeah, or re- Yeah, referee, yeah. Which uh, uh, dovetails nicely into what you were saying, John, about this was TSR taking possession of things that came from outside of TSR. Somebody else comes up with the term, but here it is, we're saying it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, no, that, that's always the thing that fascinates me most, honestly, about studying this history is how, how TSR dealt with that invitation it made to people to contribute while at the same time wanting to maintain commercial control of the product of what actually got sold and what became canonical. And it, so much of the origins of the role-playing game industry lie in that tension and conflict. <clears throat> what about you, Liz? Well, I'm pretty much with... Pretty much with John, I would use everything here except psionics. Um, I've always been of the opinion that, you know, I feel like it it gives the it gives the game more of a superhero feel than of a medieval fantasy feel, and that is just my opinion. But that's why I just don't think it's a good fit for the kind of game that I want to run. You mean the psionics? Yes. Yeah. Um, you read my mind. Yeah. So. Um, I didn't play. I didn't play a lot of Gamma World and Traveler, but you know I did cut my teeth on Champions for superhero games. So you know the whole psionics thing just seemed to. 
it seemed to fit more in a superhero setting. I could see someone in a spandex costume being able to do that as opposed to just a generic fighter or whatever. Body weaponry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Liz? You know, no. I, I would not be using – I wouldn't use the psionics at all in here. Um, nope. But, yeah, I'd use everything else. <laughs> Liz, no Gamma World ever? I own Gamma World. But I never found people to play Gamma World with. Oh, we're gonna have to fix and that. So I, I've uh, I didn't start playing, you know, actually playing Gamma World until I started going to conventions and stuff, which was very late in my life. Oh, so you have so, played at least. Yeah. Um or I've played Metamorphosis Alpha. <laughs> but not Gamma World, Gamma World. You know, every time Liz talks about her, you know, time in, in junior high and high school about having all these games and wanting to play, but there was nobody around to play with, I almost want to cry because I think, you know, in our school with our gaming group, if a gir- any girl had co- we had found <laughs> out had the games and wanted to play, we would have just been, yes, come on over, please. Well, yeah, my life has the same story. She she was interested in gaming when she was in high school, and she just didn't know anyone to game with, uh, and really didn't game until after college because of that. It's interesting. Yeah. There were a lot of gamers in our first group. We were college age, but that's because we all our hangout was the Baptist Student Union of all places. <laughs> so, Liz, when you played MA, did you play with uh, with Ward? Um. Yeah. Um, my yeah. my first Metamorphosis Alpha game was with Jim running it, and I think yeah. the very first time Mike and I played was with Mike at a convention, and we actually did survive that time. And the <laughs> wow. second time we played, we were killed. <laughs> but I died last. Yes, Mike was the last to die. I was not the first to die, but I think I was maybe the the third or possibly fourth person to die. And I had giant mutant feet. Yeah, I I was hit with with radiation, so we kept mutating as we took damage. I'm always just so impressed when he runs the game. I think he just has the most amazing style of doing MA. So it's 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 like being TPK'd by your kindly old grandpa. It is because he's so nice about it. He's so nice and sweet, and, and he seems genuinely upset that you have died. And he tears up your little character card and smiles at you while he does it. Full of sympathy. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I got to go with the majority here. And, yeah, without except for Sonics, I would use everything in here for any classic game I I think it might be fun to try the segment initiative system, but I've never had the inclination or time to do so until just recently. Maybe one of these days I'll import it and see how it works. Well, you like you uh, like the rules, Monkey. You know what that would be good for is if you created a scenario that was gladiatorial, kind of like uh, John was talking about, where it's some kind of contest where fighter versus magic user, because that stuff gets real important then. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Have a have a either a system, you know, basically in a city or as part of a dungeon crawl of some kind, sort of like in the Harry Potter thing when they were playing chess. Oh, dude! If you had if you ran something like that at North Texas Con, <laughs> they'd be standing in line to die. 
<laughs> or like in Death Stalker 2, everyone's going through the forest and then all of a sudden out of nowhere is a boxing ring. A full, yeah, with the ropes and the pads and everything right in the middle of the woods. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> Um, All right. Well, dragons, and we'll start with John. One out right. of us. So I, I, I've got to go with the four here. I mean, obviously, you know, the, there are so many essential elements, so many things that became a part of AD&D. This just, it's a great stepping stone to see between OD&D and AD&D. A lot of concepts in here with long legs. Uh, you know, it's got to lose a dragon for some of its absurdities. And yeah, some of that does come down to psionics and whoever is to blame for that. <laughs> um, but I, I give it, I give it a solid four. Okay. Jim? I'm going to go right along with the published author. Four. Cool. Liz? Four was what I was going to give it to. If only wow. those darn psionics weren't there. Am I going to have to be the grumpy one and give it to a give it a three? Well, I won't. I'm giving it a four. <laughs> see, see, this is what happens when Glenn is not on the show. We all agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Glenn would be the one to give it something and probably do to, like, ascending armor class or something. You know, something. Well, at this point, Glenn would have to give it something different so that we would have to actually do math to figure out what the final dragon total is. That's true. That's true. Because four, 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 and four, of course, leads to a six point eight three, right? Yes, or something like that. I was never that good at math. Yeah. Another reason not to like the psionic system. That's right. Too much work. <laughs> the only math I know is one d four plus one point per caster level. What else do you need, really? Right. And so, once again, we head down that dusty road. Thanking John for coming on the show twice now. Oh, my pleasure. He knew better this time, and he came on anyway. It's more fun when I'm not talking about my own stuff, but about, you know, the hobby. I don't want to be here to shill a book. Come on. I want to talk about the stuff. It's cool stuff. Yeah, it's cool stuff. We'll shill your book for you. (laughs) That works for me. (laughs) (laughs) And it is a great book, by the way. I I can't talk it up enough. But anyway... As we're heading down the road once again, Liz, how will you head down the road? I the will dusty head, Bruce Banner road. I will head down the road riding in style inside of Baba Yaga's hut. That's right. You're, you're being chicken. <laughs> chicken man! Da-da-da. Jim? I'm activating my codex of the infinite planes until I find an alternate prime material plane where magic missile automatically hits. Sweet. John? I will head down the road following Demogorgon because his second head beguiled me and I need to follow him now. <laughs> <laughs> and better behind him in front of it than in front of him where both gaze attacks works, huh? Right. Right. And I am heading down the road walking toward a gray ooze that I'm certain I'll be able to use my psionics on. <laughs> this time. No, really. And we'll be heading on and see you guys in episode 79. Goodbye. Bye. It never seems like two hours with you guys. I love this podcast. (laughs) Free arc.
The Savor Die Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions, and the Savor Die theme is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. Promotional consideration for the Savor Die Podcast was provided by absolutely no one. But if you want to send us free stuff, we're for sale. Glenn Halstrom's wardrobe was provided by Botany 500. Obligatory Doctor Who references were provided by Liz and Mike Stewart. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. <laughs>